Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening, and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Anderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Justice Magic, Binaural Production Engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. Now, without further ado, our guest for today is the Australian filmmaker, David Black. And we're just going to discuss a little bit about his short film, Sinister Symbiosis. Thanks for coming on, David. Oh, thank you for having me back again. So what time is it over there? Uh, Ten past two in the morning, so the perfect time for us to be discussing all things devils <laughs> and uh, and dark. Awesome. So um, I just finished watching this. What on God's green earth inspired you to make such a thing? <laughs> It was actually um, there's a, a there was a an anthology that was planned called Philia. Uh, Philia's now come out on DVD, and everybody that was selected to be in Philia had to choose a Philia to um, to do a film about. So somebody might have chosen necrophilia, for instance. I looked at it and I thought I had another idea altogether. I didn't want to choose one. I realized that just in the normal conversations and uh, things that can happen, you could have a lot of different filias that come up that just went over people's heads. So one of the things that um, that jumps up on this, I, I don't know if it jumped out to yourself, is all of the dictionary definitions yeah. that come up at different times. <laughs> yeah. So... My idea was that I would cover as many as possible, and uh, to join all of that together, we had um, a bondage session that takes place, and something goes terribly wrong in the bondage session. Indeed. Yep. It's right at the point that something goes wrong where our discussion comes up today, but the problem is I can't tell anybody what goes wrong, because that's sort of giving it away, isn't it? It would be, yes. It's a spoiler. But uh, anyway, um, Philia came out recently on a DVD through Darkside Releasing. And technically, my film didn't get onto Philia because we missed the deadline by a whole year. But when the DVD was about to come out, the guys who were making it said that they needed... Um, what they needed was extras for the DVD, so uh, they asked me, "Can we have Philly, uh, Can we have Sinister Symbiosis for that?" And I said, "Sure." And as I was going through it, I realised at that pivotal point there was something that could be interesting for discussion: um, to look at bondage and discipline, uh, self-flagellation, and similar things from a metaphysical point of view. 
for instance, if you look at, say, a progression of how people get into spirituality, uh, it probably starts when we're children and we, um, we're born into a religion, whether we're born into Judaism, Catholicism, Protestant, Islam, and we're given a very simplistic um, view of God. And uh, many people take this view that you need to suck up to God. <laughs> you know, you've done something bad. You, you've just got to toady up to the, um, to the supreme being. So in this idea, um, some people will prostrate themselves before God. Um, there are people that uh, will go on their hands and knees on the Via Dia Rosa, mm -hmm. how do you pronounce it? You know, the, the pathway of Jesus until their knees are bleeding. There are some Catholics that will actually self-flagellate. Um, in Islam, there is a whole festival where people mourn the death of uh, Imam Ali and they use metal whips to whip their back. And the, these, these, this idea here is... Um, People seeing God almost as a human being that you've got to um, atone for sins by punishing yourself. People that get a little bit more advanced start to look at ideas like karma. As you sow, so shall you reap. And they think, if I punish myself, I'll work off bad karma, which is more um, like the ascetics, like the Buddha was originally an ascetic monk before he became enlightened, mm -hmm. before he rejected ascetism, said, oh, let's go for the middle path. But uh, there are many festivals around the world where people are piercing their bodies and the idea is more to work off karma. So that's, that shows a little bit more of an insight into metaphysics because they're looking at the law of karma. But then you get a little bit um, further into uh, metaphysics, maybe more on the dark side. And you've got your Satanists that uh, use this type of thing, not necessarily punishing themselves, but might be punishing others, who are looking to generate the uh, energy that comes from pain and from fear. This is an energy that is... If, if you look at Hinduism and your chakra systems, it's your base chakra energy. It's the energy of fight and fight or flight and fuck. And yeah, the Satanists will bring in uh, sex magic to that too. And that's considered to be the very energy itself, the strongest energy of this world where we can't get away from making bad karma. No matter what you do, you are making karma. So these people will be generating the energy to attract demons who want to feed off this energy. And the idea is that they, they somehow think that they're actually going to control the demon, that the, they'll get the demon to do what they want. But then there are people that are a bit more advanced into the demonic side that are trying to generate this energy because they're going to be able to use it themselves. So they have found ways of being able to Gen well, they can generate the energy like the other people, the people on the lesser level, 
but they know how to harness this energy and to use it uh, for their own purposes. Am I getting too dark here or should we change the no, subject? No, no, this makes perfect sense. I, I've actually done quite a few episodes on chaos magic and um, conjuring demons. And the people that I've interviewed on this particular topic, they don't talk about like that old school Solomonic magic about conjuring a demon and making it bend to your will. What they typically talk about is bringing that energy, energy in and transforming it to something that's going to benefit themselves and, and possibly other people as well. As crazy as it sounds, there actually is a scientific basis for it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it Einstein that said that um, that all matter is made of energy? Yeah. Yeah. So if, if we go for this concept that everything around us is made from energy, but there's different energies. And um, so this brings into the law of vibration. At the subatomic level, you've got your electrons and your neutrons and your protons, and they're all moving around, so they actually vibrate. And all energy that all the energies that science can measure, they measure by the rate of vibration. Right. So, so basically, you've got your energy, and then you've got the rate of vibration. Now, to a lot of people, that's still not enough to actually be able to understand the concept of how generating this energy is going to work. Well, for those that um, are trying to attract demons, and I know you're talking about something a little bit more complex, but if we just take a step back for those that attract demons, demons are a different vibrational level. Now, they are attracted to this same fight, flight, and fuck energy. Now, if you can imagine with our realm and our, where we are, imagine if, for those that are into music, you uh, pluck or you hit middle C, right. and you've got the middle C. They're at, the, they're at a corresponding level, mathematically corresponding level of vibration higher up. If you hit at the same time, high C as middle C, the two blend. To our ears, they mm -hmm. blend. The idea is by doing this, if the demons respond, there'll be a blending and it'll create the corridor that the demons can travel in to get to our realm. Okay. Makes sense. Have I gotten too airy-fairy or do I need to Keep bring going, in a few man. other... I, I'm pretty familiar yeah. with this topic, actually. I've, I've actually attempted it, so... Oh, yeah. Well, actually, anyone can attempt it. Um, a simpler way of attempting it really is just meditation. Um, so I'm not going to start teaching people how to raise demons. I didn't actually... I, I only wanted to discuss the concept. Well, but, there's, uh, nothing, there's nothing... Honestly, I think, you know, these type of things are... People... I kind of encourage the experimentation of, you know, whatever they want, people. You know, whether it's conjuring demons, angels meditation, um, alchemy. Like to me, um, experimenting with the energy of life is kind of what we're here to do. I agree. Look, I believe that many of the different religions that forbid all of this stuff, 
what they're trying to do is to have a monopoly. Mm-hmm. Well, it's all through the Bible and the gospel where there's these uh, com- competitions. For instance, I think most people might be familiar with King Saul and the Witch of Endor. Yeah. Yeah, in that story, King Saul uh, bans throughout his whole kingdom uh, necromancy. And he bans that because the high priest has told him to do that. Well, the high priest at that time is also his prophet, who he used to consult before wars. Before he'd go into battle, he'd consult the high priest to, uh, to give him a prophecy before the battle. And uh, the high priest that used to speak to him dies, and a new high priest comes along who won't speak to him, who won't give him the prophecy. So he goes off to a necromancer who happens to be the witch of Endor, who actually raises from the dead the previous Thai priest. So for those that are religious um, and believe in the Bible, the Bible is telling you that that worked. Mm -hmm. The thing is, it was in competition with the priests. The priests wanted everybody's sacrifices. They wanted all of the money that gets donated to the temple, all of the uh, animals that get sacrificed. They wanted the monopoly on it. So, uh, and it's not just, um, not just uh, in Judaism and coming just from Judaism. People want monopolies. Wherever you've got a priesthood or um, a mystical order, they often see the competitors. It's a bit like Coke and Pepsi. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's not that many of them that come out and say, hey, um, Study what you like, try what you like, because uh, if they say that, you might not come back to them. Right. It, it does yet, pose a huge problem to the established organizations if people learn how to do it themselves. But everybody can do it for themselves and have their own experiences, and it would create a, an entire new wealth of knowledge for the, for humanity to, um, I don't know, learn from. I agree. Um, when it comes down to even the definitions of what is good and what is evil, quite often the uh, the churches will define, uh, church, synagogue, whichever religious organisation, they'll define evil as being their competitors. So if you look Always. at um, Satanism through the eyes of the church... They demonized pagans. They took their god Pan, you know, just one of the many gods, and that face of Pan, you know, the goat's face, ends up becoming, that's the face of the devil. Whereas that was, that was more of a fertility uh, religion. I mean, paganism, uh, when paganism and Christianity clash, Christianity has taken its uh, cue of how they're organising from Judaism. So with Judaism, it was tribal. Um, They had leveret marriage. The very idea of uh, doing things the way the pagans do it is a total clash of organisation. So whereas if I was born in a pagan village, I'd know who my mother is, but I might not necessarily know who my father is 
because my mother might have um, had sex with 10 people. Right. And that wasn't considered evil at all. And I'd be raised up by the village as part of the village. But in Judaism, you had to know who your father was. Mm -hmm. um, the way Christianity's come down, you inherit. You, um, last names were originally, until they insisted on hereditary surnames for everyone around the 1800s, a last name really was the area that you were the lord of. And that title and that name is what your firstborn son would inherit. So it's really um, a clash of um, the systems of organization. Right. So in my mind, paganism isn't evil. Uh, Wicca isn't evil. But I, it goes against my moralities to kidnap somebody and torture them in order to... Uh, generate uh, base chakra energy to uh, attract a demon. Right. Which so, is not like a common practice anyway. I mean, <laughs> occultists have found new ways to create that energy without harming themselves or other people. Because all it is is a lower vibration energy, you know? It's like, um, I look at it as like a Moog synth synthesizer. You can put that thing down on bass and don't hit any other knob and just Tweak it on up. Well, it's a combination of fight, flight, and fuck. I don't see anything wrong with sex. So you could generate that um, energy uh, with sex. But that, that energy, it's a very powerful energy. And I know people look at it, this is the lower energy. You know, if you look at the chakras, they say that is a very low energy. But it is the dominant energy of our realm of existence. So it's the most accessible energy to people. You could, uh, if you wanted to go for a higher energy, you could spend a lifetime and still not manage to access it. It's not the energy, the dominant energy of this realm. So right. it makes sense that, uh, that, you, that that would be the first energy you would want to harness. And maybe the only energy Hmm. One of the things, too, that, that your film made me think about was, I mean, I, I have told around a little bit with uh, bondage and BDSM and things like that. And one of the things that, that a lot of um, people will shoot for is this thing called subspace, you know, which is that out-of-body experience type of situation where you're going to reach a point where you reach a point that's... um. Where, where pain becomes pleasure and pleasure becomes pain and everything kind of merges together and you sort of leave your body. Have you personally ever practiced any of this? I gave it a try. Now, um, this is going to be the dumbest story you've ever heard. I need to right? hear this then. <laughs> it is a nutty story. Uh, through most of my life, I've been into goth. Uh, been into gothic and punk, but... Goth, goth um, subculture often ended up crossing over into the bondage subculture. Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't just the aesthetics of the clothing. Um, a lot of goths went to the bondage clubs. And uh, if I go back to uh, goth and bondage back in um, the 90s, 
In Melbourne in the 90s, there was, there's a whole lot of levels of bondage and discipline um, in the scene, right? Yeah. And the, the club that you could probably get into um, at that point was a, a club called Hellfire. And it had all of the looks and everything, but it was a bullshit club. It wasn't really the club that the real people that are into bondage and discipline went right. into. We, we have one here in New Jersey, Hellfire. Yep. So um, I was used to... Uh, the What the Hellfire used to do back in the old days was they let the goths in for free. And the goths could go upstairs and be not bothered by anybody, right? But they're expected to go downstairs on occasion. So they walk through downstairs. Mm -hmm. What was downstairs was rednecks. We call them bogans here, but I think in America you call them rednecks. <laughs> so the whole downstairs, they used to let rednecks in because rednecks drunk more beer than anybody else. So they made a lot of money. The rednecks were... If a, if the average nightclub cost uh, five bucks to go into... The rednecks were prepared to pay 30 bucks to walk in the door of the bondage club. <laughs> and everything that was set up downstairs in the bondage club was the real bondage equipment, but what was happening was bullshit. It was a show for the rednecks. Right. So with the um, interrogation chair, you know how you get strapped into a chair with the fluffy handcuffs mm -hmm. and they put a hood over your head? What the interrogator would do was really just clever banter. They would basically try to uh, trap the guy in the chair into saying something faggy about himself. And then all of his mates would burst into laughter saying, Oh, he's a poof. He's a gay. You know, that sort of thing. It was just clever banter. And uh, I knew that it was all bullshit. Now, it had been years since I'd been to... I stopped going out to the goth clubs for a few years simply because I went back to study and uh, as a mature-age student trying to work and pay for full-time university and to study, there was no time to go anywhere and there was no money to go either. Right. And so after a period of um, a few years of not going out to a goth club, I went out to a goth club. Uh, well, actually went out to a bondage night. Mm -hmm. And it's all set up. It looked like the old days, and I thought it was quite fake. <laughs> and uh, I was wrong, right? I bumped into a friend downstairs at the uh, club, and she was there for the same reason as me. Um, an old friend that had been in my band, her band was playing that night, and she'd asked, could I come along? She'd introduced me to her friend before who was all nicey-nicey and innocent. And she's downstairs and she's absolutely going into a panic. She's looking around and she'd never been into a gothic club and she's seeing all of the goths and she's freaking out. So I've come up and I've tried to stop her freaking out. And it's not working. Everything I'm saying, it's coming out wrong. Everything I'm doing is coming out wrong. And she's ready to pass out. I said, look, the bands are going to be playing in about an hour, do you want to just go upstairs and wait in the band room? And that would get us away from the goths. On the way up, there was a middle floor. It was all bondage. <coughs> and uh, they had uh, the interrogation chair. 
They had the St. Andrew's Cross. They had all of the stuff there. And I'm thinking this will make her laugh. I'm thinking it's like the old days. Um, oh, you're not getting that dinging coming out here, are no, you? No, I don't hear it. Oh, good, because I've got Facebook on the background oh, yeah. and a friend keeps messing. <laughs> anyway, I'm walking her up there and I, I just had this dumb idea. I thought, this will get her laughing, right? And she'll stop freaking out. So I said, oh, look, uh, there's the bondage stuff over there. Do you want to go over and have a look? Well, on the way there, I see a guy and he's like in a coffin and there is a woman standing on his testicles. And I looked down and I, I start saying to her, this stuff's all fake, you know. There must be a hole there or something. It didn't dawn on me that there's a woman there really actually standing on this guy's testicles. You know, he's a gimp. So this gives you an idea about what the fuck I was about to let myself in for. <laughs> so anyway, there's no absolute... Besides this guy getting his balls stepped on, there's hardly anybody there. So we go to where the interrogation chair is and it's absolutely empty there. So we sit down. Along comes the hottest woman you have ever seen. And uh, she's in a cat suit. You know, and she, um, at this point, I'm still sure it's fake. She says, oh, nobody wants to sit in my interrogation chair. So I play along with it and says, I'll sit in your interrogation chair. You know, so I sit down and she's put on the fluffy handcuffs, right? And she says, are you comfortable? And I go, yeah. And I'm expecting the uh, questions to start happening. And I'm expecting the her to trap me into saying something gay about myself. And because I'm not homophobic, I couldn't give a shit. This would just get me laughing right. and get the other girl <laughs> laughing. But the next thing, the, somebody's come up behind me and grabbed my jacket and pulled it down. So my arms gone boom, and I can't move. Next thing, somebody's just pulled a hood over my head. Yeah. And another person's ripped my um, shirt open. And I sort of looked up and I could just see out of the hood, which I'm not supposed to be able to see. And I can see I'm surrounded by about five people and I can hear this battery. You know how people get um, car batteries mm -hmm. and you've got the... Sweet. Yeah, well, I ended up with them on, 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 my, on my nipples, you know. <laughs> they had nipple clamps. And it's like... Anyway, nobody asked me a single fucking question, right? <laughs> they did give me a code word, by the way, right? So I could have used the code word. In fact, I eventually did. <laughs> and when I looked up, she was gone. <laughs> she absolutely freaked out and fucked off. And I didn't, I didn't tell you half the shit that had happened, right? But uh, I decided to go looking for her, and I found her, and she's like a quivering jelly in the corner. And I've, I've spent about 10 minutes convincing her about how the bondage clubs used to be fake, and I didn't know that would happen, etc. And she didn't quite believe me, and I said, come on, let's go up and see the bands. And as we're going up the stairs, and I'm totally fried out in my mind, this stuff has hurt like fucking hell, right? <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, 
what a wuss, Dave. You gave the code word. Surely you can get through a bondage session, right? So we've just gotten up to where the bondage stuff is. And I said, oh, look, I'll be back. I'll meet you up in the band room. And I thought she went up to the band room. I've gone straight over to where the St. Andrew's Cross is because I'm determined right. that I'm going to get through a bondage <laughs> session. <laughs> well, let's just say that um, she never believed me after that. I saw her at a tram stop about a week later and I went up to say hello to her at the tram stop and she just screamed and ran. <laughs> As for what happened in the second bondage <laughs> session, uh, let's just say it was far worse than the first one. Um, whips, um, spiky rollers, uh, hot wax, and uh, electric cattle prod. And I, I ended up um, taking about four days off of work due to the injuries. Wow. But did, did you have to tap out? Or did you survive the on, whole session? I didn't on the second one, but um, what a lot of people probably don't know about the bondage sessions is there's actually a medic on hand. Everything actually is permission-based. And so there was somebody that insisted that I had to come down because they had um, taken my skin temperature and they said, look, when you whip somebody, the blood comes up and the body goes hot. This guy's body is cold. He's gone into shock. He can't continue any further. So I, I didn't um, give the code word, but I'd stayed on it too long. As for out-of-body sessions or anything... I just came away thinking, that hurt like fucking hell. I'm not doing this again. Well, the cattle prods, they hurt. Uh, I didn't actually get hit with the cattle prod. Oh, um, well, there was the bondage mistress uh, in front of me. Uh, no, she was behind me. And um, there were two um, submissives in front of me. So after I'd cop a bit of a whacking with something that had hurt, the submissives would come up and they'd start stroking my arms or whatever. So instead of tensing up for the pain, because they're giving you a bit of pleasure, you'd open yourself up. And as soon as they realise that you've opened yourself up, bang, they'd hit you with something else and it hurt twice as hard as if you were tensed up. And uh, this woman had some very long stilettos you know, you know, stiletto mm -hmm. shoes. Yeah. And she had the toe of her stiletto um, just above my bum, um, somewhere close to the um, small of my back. And she was trying to get the stiletto up my asshole. I should point out that they dacked me, you know, so I, I'm, I'm there with... Maybe that's why this other girl freaked out. She walked past and realised I'm standing there with no pants. It could be. But anyway, um, I'm sort of pushing forward because I don't want this stiletto to go up my bum hole. Um, and the um, two submissives um, are in front and they've got the electric cattle prod. So they're hoping to zap me and I'll move back and sort of make the stiletto go up my ass. But um, I managed to move to the side and they zapped the, um, the, uh, the bondage woman instead. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that to the mistress. Yeah, yeah. But, she must um, have been. She probably would have been upset. I would think. Uh, oh, they weren't going to get angry with me once I had to be peeled off of the whole thing and it, uh, my body had gone into shock. Mm -hmm. In fact, they were just more hoping that I, know, it'd go but away I imagine that. Imagine the submissive that made that mistake. 
I don't know. Um, I did try... It's almost pre-internet days. Internet was pretty early at this point. So I did remember the name of the bondage crew and did try to look them up and uh, never did find them. This was um, some sort of crew that was really deep, you know, like when it comes down to the underground, Mm -hmm. really underground. And uh, so I never even saw any of those faces again, no matter how heavy a bondage night I ever saw. So these were people that were right into the deepest thing. So they probably didn't want um, their names out there or anything like that. Hmm. Why they were there at this particular night, I don't know, because this was, this was more the night where you'd have the fake stuff, not the real stuff. But, uh, yeah, um, from a bondage session like that, you would definitely generate quite a lot of this base chakra energy, especially combining the sex with the, um, with the pain. So, yeah, you could do it without kidnapping somebody off the street. You could do it voluntarily because there's no way in hell that you can't make um, a car battery with nipple clamps not hurt. How did that feel? Were you burned from that? Uh, not from the nipple clamps. No. Uh, I can say that with, um, with the wax, I never had a hairy back before that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're supposed to remove all of the wax from someone's back before they go. They didn't do any of that. The, this mob really did clear out. It was that uh, serious. And I actually had to ask my neighbours, could they get rid of the wax from my back the next day? So one of my neighbours got me sitting down outside, had a butter knife and was actually getting rid of all of the wax. When when all of that was removed, the hair grew back and I ended up with a hairy back after that. I'd never had a hairy back before. (laughs) I'm not monkey hairy, but, you know. Yeah, the, the wax never bothers me, you know. Because by the time it hits your skin, it's already started to cool. That's what I found. Um, you see, w- w- with things like the wax, I, I was thinking it was all for show. Yeah. The only the only thing that had um, made me made me think twice later on was the gimp in the coffin uh, getting his ball stamped on. It happens. Well, I did a music video a few years back. And the club we went to was a real club. You know, um, everything they had was done for real with the cock and ball torch the whole lot. Mm-hmm. In fact, despite all my experience with bondage, I'd never seen anything like this before. I seriously hadn't. Um, we did the music video. When I told the guy, oh, we've got a lot of fake blood, he wasn't even worried. Turns out that um, the walls in this club were splattered on a regular basis for real with real blood and the cleaning agents they used in this room to clean it up were extremely heavy. Mm-hmm. As soon as the fake blood hit the floor, um, people were telling me their eyes were stinging because of what they had to do to clean this room. So I did um, experience seeing a real club like this, but only to do the music video. I didn't see what really goes on there, but I saw the equipment. There's no way you could have your testicles in, um, in the devices they had and that not hurt. Hmm. But they do a lot of um, training. Um, so I, I take it are, that you're not into CBT. Definitely not. 
as a filmmaker, I'm into great visuals. And some of the greatest visuals come out of bondage. But as a filmmaker, I've been a bit different to the others in that I've, in a lot of the films, I won't say all of the time, every time, I've tried to adhere to metaphysical concepts, to adhere to metaphysical laws, and to actually really uh, bend, really bend it with uh, concepts um, that might blow people's minds that they haven't experienced with possibilities, but always within the metaphysical laws. So, for instance, in this, The Exorcist, Linda Blair's head turns around. I wouldn't put that in a film because a person's head can't really turn around. You basically would have a broken neck and the body would not be able to be animated by a demon possessing somebody. So I haven't gone for the jump scares and the bullshit like that. Mm-hmm. I've gone for the things that are theoretically possible, even if nobody can actually prove it at this point of time. But uh, yeah, um, we were talking. We talked more about the bondage than I was planning. But uh, mm-hmm. I suppose when you talk about sinister symbiosis, there is a, a a reality to the bondage session in the fact that I had been into a bondage session, right. but I already know for fact that um, <clears throat> some of the people involved in the filming had uh, been in the bondage scene anyway. Right, and, and one of the things is. I mean, in, in certain bondage circles, anyway, that I know of, they, they they do add a spiritual element to it of uh, trying to reach that place of subspace, that that place of where you're completely at peace, that out of body experience type of thing. And oh, um, definitely. In fact, it's more than that. It's more than that. Um, you are a hundred percent correct about the out of body experience, and that some do it as a religious thing. It's only in my film that uh, my character is anti... The character in my film, not the one I play, but our bondage mistress, is not fond of religion. But um, with pain, it also releases endorphins, various chemicals into the brain. Yeah. So uh, a person that um, has just... um, been in an accident, for instance, can be 100% alert, rational, despite what you see, having would have to be a great deal of pain. But it's the way the body reacts in that situation. And there is a theory that um, with the out-of-body experiences, they are triggered by the physical. Right. I mean, can you really experiment with your consciousness without experimenting with your body as well when the two are connected well with the two that are connected you know how we separate uh the body the mind and then the soul these are actually arbitrary um divisions yes it's actually one spectrum and different energies so it's actually one spectrum uh, there was i was Reading up on a theory that comes into um, psychology, I've been studying psychology, and unfortunately I've been studying so much I forget the proper names and everything five minutes after I've... um, (laughs) It's it's probably to do with age. But a person was talking about a bias that is to do with the division. For instance, we're getting towards the end of the month. So let's say 
you're on the 31st of the month. And then you're on the first of the next month. The difference in time is the same difference in time as if you're on the 30th of the month and the 31st. But we divide it and say it's another month. So there's a bias because of the division. We've only divided it so that our mind can get our heads around a spectrum of time through its measurement. So we divide the body, the mind and the soul. But they're arbitrary divisions. It's actually one spectrum and there's an arbitrary division. What is, say, um, just an inch before the division in body to mind and one inch after is not that big a difference. We could have divided it in different ways. And um, when people say, what divisions? What are you talking about? You've only got to look at the chakra system and how that's dividing up energies. If um, There was a study that I looked at online where a person actually matched the chakras to the sephirot on the tree of life. I actually have a poster of that in front of me that you can't see. <laughs> oh, yeah, so you've got uh, the base chakra yeah. and malchut together. Absolutely. And you, the same when thing. You read, when you read the two concepts... They actually are interchangeable. Now, these systems technically aren't interchangeable. What I would describe them as is we're all looking at the exact same picture, but people have divided it into a different jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. The whole picture in itself is too difficult to take in and understand, so we divide up our knowledge into pieces that we hope logically follow each other. So the way, um, the way Hinduism and various Hindu beliefs are divided up is a different way to the way Kabbalah is divided up. Absolutely. But every now and again, yeah, every now and again there is a concept that will stand out and although the divisions aren't exactly the same, they're roughly similar because that concept stands out on its own. So it might be a concept like karma, you know, cause and effect. So you'll find karma uh, turns up in quite a few different um, different uh, spiritual systems. Malchut, or the earth, the earth energy, will turn up in a number of um, systems. And it just so happens that um, the tree of life with Kabbalah and, um, and with uh, Hinduism, they actually do seem to overlap. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe, you know, um, Israel Rigardi's book, The Middle Pillar, he, you know, and he gives like the middle pillar exercise, which is the same thing as a chakra type of meditation. Um, you know, he, he definitely was aware of the connection, I think. Oh, hard to miss sometimes. For instance, um, in Hinduism, they've got the world starting with the sound. You know, of Aum. In Judaism, actually, not so much Judaism, but mm -hmm. let's get to Christianity for a minute. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not Christian, but the Gospel of John starts with, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right, same thing. A Word is a sound. Yep. In fact, oh, you can see it. oh, you got an om. Yeah. <laughs> 
Now, for just as many things that uh, correlate like that, I'm not trying to say all of this stuff correlates because there's also contradictions. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the, Bi the Bible also contradicts itself. It says, as you sow, so shall you reap, which is like um, a statement of karma. Mm -hmm. But then there are too many stories where somebody is um, punished for the right. sins of their father. The old eye for or, an eye. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a good one, because it's the first time that somebody's decided that um, there should be uh, a cor corresponding punishment. Or sometimes people will eat your eyeball. I haven't read that one. I, I, don't, I don't think in the Old Testament no, I, I there's any... I've seen it in a movie recently. Hmm. By the time the Old eyeball gets eaten. I don't think you find it in the Old Testament. It's no. not me defending the Old Testament, but yeah, um, if you look at... If you look at when the um, the first compilation of the texts, the first five texts, um, uh, which is in Hebrew, the Tanakh, um, actually it's just the Torah. Tanakh is Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Um, first five books, the Pentateuch, they're put together in Babylon from the scrolls that were taken to Babylon when the priests got exiled to Babylon. By that stage... Uh, people were no longer cannibals. So if there was any cannibalism in there, when they're putting their text together, they'd have written it out. Right. Have so you ever practiced cannibalism? No, I'm vegetarian. Ah, that's good. I understand what the idea behind it for some people is. If we go to the most primitive peoples that, um, that we know of, uh, people that were uncontacted, say, 150 years ago, who were then contacted, say, um, people living in the highlands of Papua New Guinea. A lot of them believed by eating parts of another person, they're absorbing that person's soul. Yes. Yeah. It may sound crazy, but it does come down again to the law of vibration, energy. They believe that through consuming a part of that person, they're consuming the energy of that person. I'm not going to say they're right, I'm not going to say they're wrong, because I haven't done it. <laughs> I have. Before I was a vegetarian, I never felt that I absorbed the energy of a cow when, I, <laughs> when I'd eat a steak. Mm -hmm. And when I eat an apple, I don't feel that I've absorbed the life force of the apple. It just mean, might mean that I'm not sensitive to that feeling. Maybe. But yeah, I do understand the, the concepts for some uh, peoples, the more animistic peoples of um, belief. Well, if you take the total belief system in animism and the weird thing about, about it is when you look at peoples that are totally unconnected, whether it be um, Native Americans people from the highlands of Papua New Guinea, writings from the ancient Romans of the peoples of the time um, that they encountered, or people from the South American rainforest to deepest Africa, many of them believe that if there is a concept of God, it is the whole world, so it's a pantheistic belief, and all nature is God and elements of God. These are people that you can't find the connection between them, but have extremely similar beliefs. 
So all of their gods are part of nature. It's just curious that uh, unconnected people could have such similar beliefs. In, in one theory, you could say, well, all of these people and modern people all look up and see that the sun comes up each day and the moon go, comes out each night and there's stars in the nighttime sky. Is it something like that, that, um, that this is an observable thing? So it's independent discovery regardless of who the people are. Or maybe we're just all connected because we're all part of that same God. I believe we're all connected. Um, in fact, uh, I don't have to believe it. We're all made of the same atoms yeah. as the water and as the rocks. And um, if you get to Kabbalah, Kabbalah is a good one because you start off with um, a Lurianic Kabbalah, I should point out. Because if somebody wants to start picking the shit out of me, they start might start talking about Kabbalah that um, is around before Sefi Yitzirah. But uh, if we get into Lurianic Kabbalah, it starts off with um, the great Simsum, which is a great contraction. You've got the Tree of Life on your wall, so I take it you're a little bit familiar with Kabbalah? I'm very familiar with it. Great. Well, the idea is that before creation comes into being all that there is is God God is perfection mm -hmm. and perfection is the absence of change so that, uh, that does play into Buddhism a bit where Buddhism says what, um, what makes this world is change change is imperfection mm -hmm. in order for existence to come into being God contracts that's the great simsum. So God contracts that makes a space. Now, that won't make a lot of sense because we're talking about things that are beyond existence. So every time we talk about a concept, we half make sense and we half don't make sense. Of course. Because cause there's a lot. Because you, can't, you beyond... can't describe something that's non-duality in duality. Yeah, you can't explain anything that is beyond the possibility of human experience. But if I can compare um, perfection to a glass of water that is filled to the brim, no matter how you, um, assuming it's got a lid on it, <laughs> no matter how you move that glass of water, you see no change whatsoever. In order for there to be change, you have to tip some water out to make some space. So God contracts um, some of God from a space. Not all of God is within existence, but all of existence is made from God. Now there is room for movement. That's where Kabbalah starts with the great Simsum. Right. Now, um, the order of how things come into existence is actually the order of your Sephirot. Now, it might not make a lot of sense. In fact, uh, I get lost trying I, to I mean, I, 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 I've spent, you know, I've been reading Kabbalistic texts since I was, I don't know, 14, so I'm pretty familiar with it. And then I've read tons of Buddhist texts, and I found them compatible. I've read Hindu texts. I've uh, read Taoist texts. I've read Native Americans um lore and, and then and then there's like all the mythologies the greek the roman and norse you know they're all 
It's mind blowing. They're all yeah. trying. To, um, you, you, you can tell that they're all trying to explain the same thing, but they're just using different gods, different pantheons, different symbols, and they're different cultures. Yeah. Getting back to where um, I got myself lost before. Once existence comes into being, all existence is made by God from God. So basically, we are all made from the same thing. Now, I'm not talking about the God particle. The God particle that, that the scientists are looking for is the very first particle within existence. God is what is beyond existence. Absolutely. Actually, exist- I will talk about the God particle. Basically, science already believed what I'm saying. They're saying so. We talk about like the Higgs, but well, not the Higgs but The Higgs bo- I guess yeah, now, that- now there's another one. Um, no, we're talking about the Higgs boson one. That's the okay. one they've called the God particle. So scientists are saying there is an ultimate particle that we are all made of. It hasn't discovered it yet, but they're pretty certain of it. It's the strong theory. And so that's the Higgs boson particle. So, yes, this theory of everything being made from the one substance, an infinite uh, consciousness, this is a theory that uh, comes along long before science reaches the same conclusions. In fact, many of the metaphysical um, uh, laws that I look at, science caught up with them later. So each time I say, oh, yes, this is scientifically proven. Einstein said this and has done that experiment. The publications that I've um, read where these are in, some of them were published 100 years before Einstein was born, and they're talking about previous publications and previous books and previous practices going back thousands of years. So... Yes, when it comes down to the animistic beliefs that uh, a lot of people think, oh, these people are crazy primitives, just the fact that science caught up with uh, with it, saying, look, there's an ultimate particle that everything comes from. Right. This is the belief of, um, of a lot of these peoples. They say, look, that rock, that rock is alive. And somebody that is rational in the modern world will say, no, the rock is not alive. They say, the rock is conscious. And we'll say, no, it's not conscious. All of a sudden, science is saying that rock is made from the same particles you are made from. And Kabbalah is saying those particles are basically God, and God can perceive through them. Right. Isn't that what the alchemists would call the prima anima? Possibly. I think that's what they call it. In Buddhism, we call it emptiness. Taoism, we call it Tao. Science is calling it the Higgs bassoon. The thing is, science always catches up with these things because as scientists are being able to measure more, more, and more, the things that they're coming up with as their concepts are quite often there in the ancient mysticism. But when you look at what they're doing to find the Higgs boson particle, the God particle, that Hadron Collider is giant. <laughs> big. <laughs> I'm just wondering if, you know how like our computers nowadays are tiny but have got massive processing power. And then when you're learning about computers, 
they show you the old IBM computers um, that uh, the supercomputers of the 50s that took up a whole room. And mm -hmm. they go, oh, by the way, the processing power in your phone is uh, a thousand times greater than that whole room. I'm wondering if something like the Hadron Collider, when they get more advanced, will, they, will it be more accessible? There'll be like a desktop device. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the rate that technology is moving. Technology is catching up with this every day. Um, currently, you have to be a very advanced master to be able to harness, um, say, the base chakra energies to then be able to use them. But uh, one day science might... Uh, you'll have a device where you actually don't have to be particularly skilled and you can harness that energy. Right. I remember you telling me one time that you had your own Kundalini awakening and it shook you up so much that you do not want to experience it again. Wow, there's people out there like me who are just chasing it endlessly. I had it happen to me twice. Um, so if I, if I doubted it the first time because um, 12 months went by, I did it to myself the second time. That's when I said I will not do it again because I had the exact um, situation happen twice. And I don't brag about it because I didn't come away with, um, with a lot. after it, it, it was a good mind-altering experience such as the first time you take acid. I don't want to promote drugs on here, but um, I am oh, one of those people. I, we we talk about that, drugs all the time on here, especially LSD, psychedelics, angel dust, you know, the usual. Well, I've always believed that um, the people, a lot of the people that really were advanced with um, spirituality really had taken mind-altering drugs. Uh, when, I, when I get into it more and more and I learn more about them, the people that I meet that um, haven't taken any mind-altering drugs, I usually find that they're like little children. They right. stay on message with their dogma and they keep at you. They've never experienced anything and they're frustrating little gnats that you just don't want to worry about. They might have their certificates on the wall that say, I'm a rabbi, I'm a priest, I'm a bishop or whatever. But the unfortunate truth is that drugs should be legal and I don't think you should abuse them. They're very powerful. But Boy, you at least need to have a smoke of um, of uh, dope to start to open those corridors at least once in your life. Absolutely, I I, I agree. I mean, I think the re one of the reasons it is illegal is to prevent people from having mystical experiences that keep them under the control of these churches and governments. I'll tell you a recent archaeological uncovering. It was in the last year during this lockdown. Archaeologists in Israel found an ancient synagogue. Now, that's not big news because they find them all of the time and they're all roughly similar where they've got um, the... I'll get into why they're similar in a minute because that's a separate mind-blowing story. But they found, they analysed a residue on the altar, you know, where you normally burn incense mm -hmm. and it was hash. <laughs> In other words, the people coming in there into this particular synagogue room mm -hmm. were going to be getting a little bit high right. during the meeting from hash. Now, it's not unusual for religions to use alcohol, opium, mescaline, 
um, all sorts of drugs. A lot of people have this uh, very Christian concept of ancient Jews thinking that they didn't partake. Oh, fuck yeah, they did. Uh, but uh, our modern beliefs, uh, oh, you shouldn't take drugs. I'm telling you, archaeologists found that um, it was part of their service. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. When it comes down to, did ancient Jews get into mysticism? This is the second part. When it comes down to the ancient synagogues they find, between about 200 BC to maybe 700 or 800 AD, maybe 600 AD, the for no reason that I've ever been able to find, the uh, mosaic uh, floors of the synagogues had the zodiac on them. If you don't believe me, you can Google it. You'll see pictures of various synagogues like Jura, uh, Europus mm -hmm. in Syria, right through. And you'll always find that the main room that people sat in had uh, a mosaic pavement with the zodiac. Hmm. Well, I can't see that astrology is used for anything other than trying to divine the future. It is a mystical system from yeah. Persia. So, yeah, there, there's a lot more that's been written out of, um, of... When people want to teach about the religions and give a mainstream view, there's a hell of a lot that um, is not taught. It's not known by today's teachers. So as soon as something doesn't fit into the pattern of how society would like or the mainstream of society, they write it out, they start removing it, and one generation later, people have never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. We see, I see here, especially in the United States, you see that happening all over the place where they're writing things out <laughs> of what they're teaching in schools. Censorship is very hard in this day and age because I mean, you've got the internet. They want to run, they want to write out the Holocaust. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, God! <laughs> they uh, want to take our slavery. They want to take it out. Today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Is it really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I put a thing up on Facebook about it. I don't normally put up anything political, but um, for me, uh, the Holocaust isn't just something that affects me as a Jew because there were so many Holocaust survivors that came to Melbourne that I grew up with a lot of them. But one of the things that a lot of the Jewish people said with the Holocaust was never again. And yet, ever since the Holocaust, there hasn't been a period of four or five years go by without another one. I think it was just two years ago, I watched Hotel Rwanda, and I'm watching the, what happened with the Hutus and the Tutsis. I won't even say it's a unique story. It's not the only Holocaust. You know, it's just this world has constant... Right now there is a Holocaust going on with, um, with the Uyghur Muslims mm -hmm. in China. They're, they're saying, oh, these aren't concentration camps. They're re-education camps. <laughs> a million Muslims um, going through what is basically a Holocaust. That doesn't technically relate to what we were saying, but there are a lot of people that believe that there are evil forces in play that uh, bring people like Hitler to power. And Hitler was known to be um, very superstitious. He wanted the Habsburg spear. He believed in the hollow earth theory and actually sent uh, Nazis to, I think it was the Arctic. Antarctica. To find the, it was Antarctica. Antarctica, yeah. Yeah, 
Yep, find the hollow earth, um, the beliefs of the tooler system. Uh, I know it's mainly conspiracy theorists and nut jobs that get into this, but the problem with it is that it actually is documented and there was this whole conspiracy crazy theory with the Nazis. And they did used to um, hold pendulums above maps to do map dousing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even the United States government does, you know, has their own psychic area, like the remote viewing and all that. You know, I had, um, I've had him on a couple times, David Morehouse. He was in charge of the CIA remote viewing program. He wrote the handbook for it. And I actually took one of his courses, and I was amazed at the results of that course. I couldn't believe it. I didn't it. even know about it until I saw the film Men Who Stare at Goats. Yeah, it, but it's, it's amazing, like, how it works. I mean, I can't, after taking, you know, it was like a six-day course I took on it with about 20 other people, and it blew my mind. Yeah. There's definitely something there. Um, the fact that science later on catches up with so much mysticism. Um, with tonight, most of the laws that I've um, talked about, they're not actually the ones in Kabbalah, even though I used Kabbalah to demonstrate a lot yeah. of it. They're actually the laws in Kibalium. The seven, so, the seven laws, yeah. Yep, yep. The Kibalium is an amazingly written book um, with uh, how it uh, brings up the, uh, the various laws like um, law of vibration, law of correspondence, etc. Uh, it even brings up the idea of the all, which is the same concept of Ein Sof, in Kabbalah, mm -hmm. that uh, they call God the All. In Kabbalah, God is called without end. But it is the same uh, panentheistic concept of God rather than, say, the pantheistic um, concept that you see in the very primitive religions and that Spinoza put forward. Um, to explain, just in case I sound like I'm being up myself and talking over people's heads, Pantheism is the idea that the sum total of everything in the universe uh, is God. Panentheism is the idea that not all of God is within the universe. Now, in pantheism, God is always imminent because everything is made of God, never transcendent. In panentheism, God is transcendent because not all of God is within the world, because God had to withdraw some of himself to create room. But God is also always imminent because all of the world is made of God. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the difference between pantheism and panentheism. I've come at all of this from a panentheistic point of view. So I just thought that might help people in case they're encountering this for the first time and they think of some sort of charlatan that's pulling uh, ideas out here and there um, and not knowing what they are, what they connect and just making it up as I go along. No, I'm not making it up as I go along. Somebody else made it up and I read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if any of my material is actually original either. <laughs> I actually do believe um, an old, old statement I read, and I don't know who said it, but they said there is no unique thought in the world 99% or nearly everything that any of us come up with 
hasn't come from us. Now, it's possible that somebody will have a unique thought and if you have one in a lifetime, wow, you'd be one of the few that does. Right. Plus, I, nobody, I mean, for me personally, I can't prove that any of my thoughts are my own anyway. Like, how can I? I don't know where my thoughts really originating from. That's another problem. Um, thought is an energy. Um, a lot of people, um, I don't think anyone can really explain it where thought comes from. I don't think they can explain about the soul. Now, I do have um, theories on this, and the problem with my theories is they're, they're different to the theories and everything that I've studied. So if I'm sitting here and I'm saying, I'm talking to you about the laws according to Kabbalion, or I'm talking to you from the laws according to Kabbalah. The problem is, the minute that I say this, it's not in the Kabbalion, it's not in the Kabbalah. So if I'm putting those up as authorities, what I'm about to tell you is not in them and probably contradicts them. But I don't believe that um, the soul is actually within this physical realm. For instance, people say that there are a lot of religions that believe you have to do things to the body on death to let the soul escape. I believe that our bodies, um, when it comes to the soul and the mind, they're more like a radio that receives mm -hmm. a signal and you are tuned in a certain way. And the soul is more like a beam of light or a radio signal. And we are receiving. We all have a soul, but it never left the realm, um, the higher realm. It is more like a radio trans um, signal that we pick up. Yeah, I also feel that way too. And one of the things that also makes me think about, you know, thoughts not being my own, is the concept of the Akashic Records. You know, if, if, if all knowledge is already in some other realm of consciousness, th that means nothing I'm thinking is original. Well, that comes back to the Buddhist practice. Um, I can explain how it got explained to me. Basically, every, or, in fact, the Buddhist and Kabbalion on this one are both very much a simpler, similar idea. In Buddhism, all of the knowledge, everything is already there, but what's stopping you from perceiving it is your own imperfections. Mm-hmm. So if we go back to this glass of water idea again, you remember I mentioned a glass of water. In Buddhism they say your mind in its natural state is like a glass of water that you can see through clearly. Right. But if you bring up the different imbalances, your imbalance could be anger. So let's say anger is pepper. Put pepper in the water. You can't see through the, the water as clearly now. And um, if you um, bring up jealousy, another imperfection, put something else in the water there too, you know, maybe paprika. And the more of these imperfections, the more you're putting in the water. Now, our mind, as we're thinking, stirs up all of these emotions. Imagine the water being stirred around and the pepper and the paprika 
are just colouring that water. You cannot see through it. When you meditate, you slow your mind down and the actual pepper and the paprika start to settle at the bottom and you can see through the water much more clearly. Kabbalion almost says the same thing. It doesn't give that um, analogy, but it says that all of the knowledge is there already. And it says, um, oh boy, I'd have to use the internet to get the exact um, quote, but it's uh, something about the lips of the teacher. Ah, can't remember the quote, but what they're saying is a person can hear the truth on any matter, but it's not until they're ready that they can absorb it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like um, the, the, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear kind of thing. Like that, except that the teacher... Well, the on a transcendental words, level. Yeah, the, the teacher's words have actually been said, but the student can't absorb them until they're ready to absorb them. And that happens to me all the time. I'll tell you what the greatest spiritual story in the world is that demonstrates that idea. And this is where you're going to say, Dave, get off my podcast, you're an idiot. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. In, the, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy meets her companions and Dorothy wants to go home. The cow, she meets the Cowardly Lion. The Cowardly Lion wants bravery. Uh, the Tin Man wants a heart. Um, the Scarecrow wants uh, a brain. But it's only through the trials and tribulations of going along the yellow brick road that the lion realises he always was brave. And the tin man realises he always did have a heart. And the lion uh, and the scarecrow realises he always did have a brain. And Dorothy gets told, you only got to click your heels and you can go home. (laughs) In other words, it was always within them but they couldn't see it until life's experiences had shown them that that was already in them. In a way, that's... So I, I consider that the greatest spiritual book. But in a way, that is what um, what the Kabbalion is saying. You're going through all of these experiences. These experiences, you're either going to learn and advance or you're going to go backwards if you uh, don't adhere to some basic moralities... Um, to move forward. Hmm. In fact, the Kabbalion says the swing to the left is equal to the swing to the right. Technically, it's true, except that none of our laws happen within a vacuum, so you've actually got a ball on a, on a string or a pendulum. It actually gets slowed down by atmospheric pressure. But assuming you're in a vacuum, the swing to the left is equal to the swing to the right. And that, that one's talking about how when somebody is overcompensating, That is a way that people are dealing with something. So your narcissist who pretends, who seems to be overconfident, is actually the person that is the least confident. It's an overcompensation. The person who's very angry is actually very fearful. Mm -hmm. The idea in Buddhism is to find balance. So not to overcompensate, not to have the, the tendency to try to find balance through overcompensating. You end up with a very complicated psyche that way of 
if you imagine that overcompensation and the balance as being what I think in America you call a teeter-totter, we call it a seesaw. Mm -hmm. Imagine all of the different elements, they're all out of balance and they're all working together. And you're afraid to move one into balance because everything else is going to move. Well, that's what our spiritual path's like, is trying to get everything into balance so that we can see quite clearly. It's tricky. Oh, I didn't mean to create an awkward silence there. Oh, no, I think it's just making me think, like, you know, it, it, it's right back to that Buddhist middle way, the teachings of Nagarjuna, you know? Buddhism's brilliant. I, my mind was blown when I first encountered Buddhism. And it was taught to me the wrong way at school. I, I consider that I first encountered Buddhism not when I learned about it at school. At school, because um, I went to a Jewish school, they tried to present it, present it from a Jewish point of view. Mm -hmm. So your Buddha becomes like a prophet or a god. And uh, your noble tenfold path becomes your ten commandments. And they, they were trying to approach it from this particular view. The structure of one religion is not necessarily the same as the structure of another. <laughs> and the goal of one religion is not necessarily the goal of another, even if on a deeper level, the goal of all religions appears to be to, be, to reunite with God or to be reabsorbed into the Ain Sof. Mm -hmm. They might call it yeah, they might call it the rapture, they might call it anything that they want. They might say the Messiah is going to come and uh, then everything in earth will be as in heaven. It's all the same thing. That um, is almost a description to me. If, um, if what shall be done on earth is the same as in heaven is almost a description of the uh, great Simpson, which is contraction, going back. Uh, actually, the Great Simpson doesn't contract with the Big Bang. I should point out that the Great Simpson happens before creation. What happens at the point of creation is everything comes out like the Big Bang. Yeah. The easiest way to visualize it. Do you remember an album by Pink Floyd um, on the cover? And they've got white light and it hits a prism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dark Side of the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon. On Dark Side of the Moon, you've got white light. White light has every single color of the rainbow in it. As soon as you hit the prism, it explodes out into the separate colors. Mm -hmm. That, in a way, is the great simsum. The contraction is hitting the prism. Creation is where white light is broken up to the different colors. Now, you can say those different colors aren't white light, but they're all made from white light. Yeah. It's just that not all of what was in that white light is within any of those colors. And that's where, like, like, like that's a good, good analogy, too, because, like, in light, you have the seven colors. In sound, you have the seven notes. Um, you know, that, that number seven is just repeated all over the place, as uh, Crawley so kind of would demonstrate it. <laughs> they talk about the vibration of color. Mm -hmm. Science talk about color vibrating nowadays, not just sound, which is measured in hertz, um, but they talk about color vibrations. And that, uh, takes yeah, you, believe, and that takes you to the correspondences, which is in the Kabbalah. Yeah. Now, I believe that all of the religions, in one way or another, are talking about going back to that white light. They just have different ways of expressing it. And um, then you've got uh, people that aren't very advanced that um, end up in control. 
that have got different ways of fucking it up when they um, try to control their followers and express it to their followers and they simplify it. You know, like the Catholic Church saying, um, if you want to go to heaven, you have to pay indulgences to the church. Yeah. And you can buy the way out of hell for your relatives by paying an indulgence for them. <laughs> I don't think the Catholic Church does that anymore, though, does it? I don't know what they do. I don't know. I don't pay attention. You know? uh, well, I wasn't saying it to knock the Catholics. All of the churches do it. I mean, I, I kind of do like... Uh, What's the guy's name? Pope Francis. I think he's one of the better popes. This is the current one? Yeah. Yeah, I don't like him at all. You don't? No. He's too political. Uh, that actually sounds crazy. A pope in the past always was a political figure. Yeah. Popes were the ones that anointed kings. Um, but for me, with modern politics... There's a number of things that the Pope has said that um, he must know that he's lying when he says them. I don't want to get into the... Oh, look, it's a bit much for me to get into the politics here, but I will anyway, right? As a Jew, I'm brought up with all of the prayers in Judaism that talk about Israel. I'm brought up with the whole history of Israel, you know, from... Abraham coming to Israel to now. When you learn about Jewish history, there was never a time that Jews didn't live in Israel. The Pope goes on about Palestinians. Now, I'm not against Palestinians, I'm not against Arabs, but it's not their fucking country. The, um, the idea that uh, Palestinians are the natives and all of the Jews are, uh, are foreigners and this shit that the Pope um, talks about his own books contradict that. Hmm. You know, Jesus was a Jew that lived in ancient Israel. He was not a Palestinian. Where did the, the Palestinians Palest come from? Ah, first off, you've got to get to the name Palestinian. The word Palestine was given to the area after 135 AD, um, which means that Jesus was never a Palestinian. He's before that. Right. What happened was uh, the Jews, in losing the, um, the the second revolt against Rome, were punished. And the Romans said, who was the Jews' greatest enemy? And they told the Philistines. So they named the area after the Philistines. They decided to name the area after their worst enemy. Now, the name stuck for a long time. The Romans, they got conquered. Different peoples um, took over the area. And the name was used as an administrative term because each person that took over the area takes over from the previous. So for a long time, Syria and uh, Israel and the Palestinian territories uh, and Jordan, they are collectively either Palestine or Syria-Palestina. Hmm. As, um, as for Palestinians, they're Arabs. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't live there. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't have political control you know, of their own destiny. But you shouldn't write out a people's history because of your fucking politics. I didn't know he did that. Yeah, look, I believe that this whole world, we should be one, one humanity. There should be no starvation in this world because we've got plenty of resources. There should be no one that's oppressed. There should be no one 
that doesn't have a citizenship of a place. Now, I say that because there are Palestinians that do not have citizenship of uh, the countries they live in, including within Palestine. Now, it's Whatever's going on there, it's not a good um, thing because there's always going to be people that are in control that want more control, more power, more money. Mm. So there is a cause for the people that call themselves Palestinians, but there is also a cause um, for the people who are Jews that live in Judea. And uh, to cancel out the narrative of the Jewish people like the Pope's trying to do is wrong. Mm. I don't turn around to um, Aboriginals and say, this, you know, when I talk about Aboriginals, I'm in Australia. I don't turn around to the native tribe and say, fuck off, you, this isn't your land. I don't negate their uh, beliefs. I don't judge them and say, mine are higher than yours. For the Pope to be doing that to Jews, is uh, it's not going to make me like him. He's the one that shit cans us. Yeah. Well, I guess I look at it from a different point of view. I just look at him as like, well, at least the guy is not telling homosexuals they're going to hell and stuff like that. That's a big improvement. It wasn't until about 1967 that Vatican II came along. I can't remember what exact year because... Um, but I do remember that I was growing up in that period of time. I was born in 64. The ideas of Vatican II where the, uh, the, the Catholic Church was no longer blaming Jews for killing Jesus. That hadn't filtered through to all of the nuns. And being the only Jew in uh, primary school when they had religious education meant that I had to go in with Catholics because um, we're at a predominantly Greek Orthodox school. So the way they thought there was, we're all Greek Orthodox. Oh, the Catholics are different. Well, let's ch he's different. Let's chuck him in with them. The nun there used to treat me like fucking shit and go on about Jesus killing the Jews. <laughs> So, Crazy. yes, the Catholic Church has improved in many ways. <laughs> they don't have the Inquisition taking my people, or my ancestors, I should say, and, yeah. uh, and torturing them to death. Yeah, I don't like Although that. Although I will say, I think pagans, pagans and Gnostics um, really copped it worse. They don't talk about the Gnostics too much, and the uh, Albigensian Crusade, and the, uh, the murder of the Cathars, and a lot of the things that were done against Gnostics. Yeah, yeah. But that being said, I don't dislike Catholics. I just don't like this particular Pope. There's not one of us that doesn't have a really violent, savage history. Unfortunately, that's true. Well, that comes back to the Vaishakra energies. This is what we are as human beings. We cannot get around the fact that we're going to be altering everything. When I say altering everything, you kill an animal, you've altered it. You breathe in air, turn into carbon dioxide, you've altered it. We are part of change, which is a part of what makes this universe. This universe, um, as the Buddha said, is change is the main law of this universe. And uh, well, when it comes down to, I, we, I could have said with killing, I could have used the word destruction, but there's a problem with the word in that it's um, a personalized word rather than an objective word. For instance, 
if you if you look at a change and you dislike the change, you say that what was there before was destroyed. But if you look at a change and you like the outcome, you say something was created. But creation and destruction are actually the same thing. It's just the way you view it. Oh, absolutely. Yep. I think a more... Like we were talking about a lot of uh, dark energies, what they call dark energies. I think the only way you can view it, is it light or dark, is from a personal point of view, is, it, is this, what you're doing, wholesome to yourself or unwholesome? Is it going to improve you or is it going to damage you? Makes sense. It sounds selfish, but at the end of the day, in order to be in balance, we do have to have compassion. We do have to care, but not at the expense of caring for ourselves. Right. In fact, Hillel, have you ever heard of Hillel? Mm-hmm. He was a, a, a rabbi in um, Israel just before Jesus. In fact, his time overlaps with Jesus. So he's an old man when Jesus is a young child. And he said something to the effect of, um, if I'm not for myself, who will be? But if I'm only for myself, who am I? There's actually a part three of it that doesn't look like it fits, but he says, and if not now, when? Yeah. And that, that's actually the whole statement. Interesting. Well, Jesus actually paraphrases or outright quotes Hillel. Most of Jesus' most famous sayings um, are Hillel sayings. Hillel said, do not do unto others that which you find hateful. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. Um, Jesus often um, quotes Hillel, so I can only assume that Jesus was influenced by Hillel. Hmm. Hillel is quite often seen as a person that brings along all of the goody-goody ethics in Judaism and where you've got this um, this change from the old angry God um, to um, a, a Judaism that is less about vengeance and more about what we consider today's uh, liberal moralities. Huh. But in a way, he's also saying something similar to myself. He's actually saying something similar to the Buddha. He's talking about balance. If I'm not for myself, who am I? Uh, who will be? But mm-hmm. if I'm only for myself, who am I? That, that seems to me to be two sides of a coin talking right. about balance. Yeah, middle way. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. So people, people shouldn't neglect themselves or feel guilty um, for thinking about themselves. No, no. Well, it's just like the other saying, like, uh, you can't take care of somebody else if you don't take care of yourself first. Or you can't I help agree. another person until you've helped yourself. Yeah, so I talked about a lot of things that are considered to be dark energies through um, the light of uh, a Judeo-Christian world Mm -hmm. or a Judeo-Christian viewpoint. But I don't consider them to be dark. I don't consider them to be forbidden. I don't either. uh, I suppose if I'm going to wrap up and summarize what we've been talking about, I'd say many of these concepts are thousands of years old there's proof that they're thousands of years old because they're written thousands of years ago. But even those that we can't find the proof of were still published in books two, three hundred years ago. 
and science is now actually um, caught up. Things like uh, the God particle, for the idea of all things being made from God by God. Um, so the idea of all matter is made of energy. Science is now catching up with these things. So whereas today's discussion might make us sound like fruitcakes, any of the concepts that we've discussed today that are not backed by science may very well be the science of tomorrow. Most likely it will be. If things continue along the same trajectory. That's if they continue. There are times where we've gone backwards. For instance, um, the fall of Rome. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the people that um, read about uh, advanced civilizations and giants and things like that, there's a lot of literature that came out of England that was written by people that had never known that Rome existed, but they found these giant aqueducts and things that were built by the Romans. And they're all covered in moss and they're ancient and a very advanced technology to these people in Britain um, and parts of Europe after the fall of Rome, two, three hundred years after the fall of Rome. They say, who built this stuff? They must have been giants. Mm -hmm. And when they could see how advanced the stoneworking was and things, they said they must have been technologically advanced. But it is a, a point of one period of time that we know about where everything regressed. Things don't always progress. There are a lot of people that believe that uh, some of the ancient monuments of 10, 15, 20,000 years ago were built by aliens because they're far more advanced than anything we can build now. And they go, how the hell did people cart stones this big, like the big stones at the bottom of the temple in Baalbek in Lebanon? They look at them and they go, how, how did any ancient person make those? We're not sure we could actually lift anything that heavy nowadays. How did they get everything fitting in perfectly? So there are times where we lose knowledge and things regress. Yeah, that's a whole another three-hour episode there. <laughs> I didn't mean to go for three hours on this. You might want to chop it back to nah, a bite-sized I always put them out the way they are. I don't edit anything, man. But um, I do have to go to work, so we got to oh, wrap it here. up. Um, so uh, before we wrap it up, though, where is the best place for my listeners to find you, find your films? What are you up to? Oh, that'll be my YouTube channel. Um, I can get you the link. If you've got the link, you can just uh, put it up mm -hmm. there. You know, with YouTube channels, you just get these long links. But I think it's under Darvis Black. Okay. Well, I'll put a link to that in the notes of this episode so my listeners can find you and watch some of your short films and uh, give you some, you know, interact. And I hope you continue to... Um, do great work, man. Thanks for being on. Oh, thanks for having me on. Awesome. I'll hang on for one second and I'm just going to play the outro.
link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only 